This episode is brought to you by Canela Bistro and Wine Bar, serving Spanish plates and over 70 wines from Spain in the heart of San Francisco. Visit us socially at Canela SF and canelasf.com. You're listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind with Matt Schuster. We're getting inside the brilliant and delicious minds of remarkable culinary individuals. We're telling stories, cutting up, and breaking it down. Hi, everybody. I'm here with my friend Janine Summerlin. Hi, everybody. So Janine is a longtime baker, and she works for Whole Foods. And you've worked for Whole Foods for how long? I've been with Whole Foods for almost 24 years. 24 years. A long time. It is. I started when I was like four. Yeah. So congratulations to you. Pre and post Amazonian. Pre and post Amazonian, yes. So the reason I asked you here today is because you have an interesting Elizabeth Faulkner story. Tell me about that. Elizabeth Faulkner was inspiring to me. I came to Whole Foods from the restaurant industry and didn't know anything about baking. And I got hired to run the bakery department. And... At the time, Elizabeth Faulkner was just sort of breaking down all the barriers. And so it inspired me not only to go to culinary school, where I did to get my baking degree, and then I was able to intern at her restaurant. I sort of stalked it a little bit just to kind of work there. And And you started at Tom Marie's, which doesn't really, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was a great, it was a great San Francisco program. Yeah. It was a wonderful little school. So you ended up at... Citizen Cake via your 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 internship externship kind of thing, right? Yeah, I used to walk by there every day on my way home, and I would just look in the big picture window, and they would do pulled sugar, which was just this wonderful thing that I got as a kid. Like you'd get sugar ribbons, you mm-hmm. know, at the holidays, but I had never actually seen anybody make it. And this is late nineties, right? This is this is late nineties. So yeah. This is nineteen ninety. Eight. Gotcha. Seven ninety eight. And so, and that really actually inspired me. I then went out and I like saved all my money and I bought all this like candy equipment that I wanted to do candy with. That's and, awesome. Which I, I never did, but I still was inspired by it. And I will still stop and sit in front of a window and watch somebody pull sugar, but I've never seen it again. I'm, nobody, people don't do that anymore. It could be in some ways a dying art. I think in many ways it is. And I think one of the things that was so wonderful about Elizabeth and especially about Citizen Cake is that it just, it took pastry and it took baking and it put it on par with every other sort of culinary art form. Mm. And it had always been in the background at Mm. that point. And, you know, you've got things, but you didn't really worry about how they were made or where they came from. And she was one of the people that really just broke that out Mm. and, and, and there was a restaurant dedicated to that, and mm-hmm. that was amazing. It's interesting because in the interview, we do spend some time talking about how she doesn't ever like to feel pigeonholed as pastry. And I guess it sounds like from what you're saying, like you could kind of always tell that she was not your typical pastry person, even when she was doing pastry. Just by sheer happenstance, I ended up working at various Whole Foods markets that Mm. happened to be around the restaurants that she would open, Mm. around Citizen Cupcake, around Mm -hmm. Orson. And I think just my opinion of her would be, my personal opinion of her would be that she's just someone who's incredibly creative. Mm -hmm. She always seemed to try to take something and do something that hadn't been done before. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is inspiring to me in a chef. 
And I think because I got into the industry when I did with people like Elizabeth Faulkner, I never necessarily saw a pastry chef any different from a traditional chef. It was just somebody who had an incredible talent to, mm. to make beautiful, incredible food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's um, awesome. So we also spend a lot of time talking about sustainability in the interview. And I know that that word is huge and can mean a lot of things. So yeah. what does that mean to you? I think it's different today than it was back in the late 90s. And sure. I think someone, so someone like Elizabeth, there were a lot of chefs that did it, you know, but it wasn't, it just wasn't in vogue like it is now. Mm-hmm. Now it's just used so freely. And I still think we need to use it more. I still think it needs to catch on more. I, I still think that people don't realize that food and food sources and people and and the things that they make are expendable. Mm-hmm. And that someday they will just go away. And so I think that sustainability is it's important. And I think that she was one of the folks like along with Alice Waters, that just really put it on the map and sort mm. of made it a standard word. Mm-hmm. You know, I think she cared about about things like that. Do you feel it's something that maybe when we were younger wasn't as important to us, but as we all get older, it becomes more important? You know, it's kind of interesting. As someone who's a foodie and who's trained in food, but yet also I'm an academic mm-hmm. and I have an academic history. And I just think that in general, especially in American society, we're just so used to easy consumption. I don't think we think about, about the ramifications of what we do Mm -hmm. from how we mindlessly eat to how we mindlessly throw away packaging to how we quickly recycle in some areas, a bottle, we don't even reuse that. And then there's some areas like Los Angeles that don't even recycle at all or compost. Mm. So and I forget that living here in the Bay Area and then going outside of this bubble and seeing that people don't even know what to do mm. and how to how to sustain even their own community. So I think it's really important and I think it gets lost in things. And I think in, in general, not to sound bleak, but I just feel like in general, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're a little bit lost. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and I think, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to get all dark on you. <laughs> well, after we finish crying, you know, let's uh, let's take a listen to this episode. So, thank you for your feedback on that. I appreciate that. Um, Thanks for inviting me to hear it. I'm yeah. excited. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's take a listen. Thank you. Elizabeth Faulkner has done so much. She made pastry at Masa's under Julian Serrano. She was the head pastry chef at Elka. She helped open Rubicon with Tracy Desjardins. She opened her own restaurants, including Citizen Cake in 1997, as well as Orson in 2008. She's authored Demolition Desserts, recipes from Citizen Cake, as well as Cooking Off the Clock. And you're likely to find her on various Food Network cooking shows, including Iron Chef America, where she was both a contestant and a judge. Currently, she's living in New York, which is where I caught up with her. Welcome back. I'm here with Chef Elizabeth Faulkner. Hello. How are you, man? Good. Thanks for coming. I'm so happy to be here. Happy to see you in New York. Oh, my God. I love coming here. The only thing I don't like about New York is how wherever you are, you hear the footsteps above you and below you. You know that, like, people are walking around. Or you see them across the street in the window. Or you see Right. <laughs> right. Or they see you, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so we're just going to dive in. So who cooked growing up? Well, my mom cooked growing up mostly because 
I think my mom's really, really into food. It's kind of where I think a lot of my spark comes from. And we used to watch Julia Child, mm. like a lot of people of our generation did. And she would always like want to make different things. So, you know, it was great because we, she would just cook different stuff to kind of change it up. And I also think my mom is naturally good at something that we talk about a lot today, which is dealing with food waste. Mm. And it's funny, I've been thinking about food waste a lot lately just because it's not just about using the entire nose to tail or root to flower in cooking, but it's really just what you have on hand and using it up. Mm -hmm. So my mom's really been good at that kind of cooking for a long time. She'll be like, let's take the salsa and make it into a sauce and, you know, stuff was, like was that. Was she a working mom? My mom worked all the time. She's uh, retired now, but she's mm -hmm. a dietitian. Mm. And I think when, even when I was growing up too, people would think, oh, a dietitian, your mom must be like super health nut freak. And she's not that. She's not like, you know, we're all restricted all the time from mm -hmm. food stuff and because also she loves to bake. Mm -hmm. So she's still like that. And in fact, my mom's kind of a sugar pusher. When I go home, she's <laughs> always got like tons of baked stuff. And I grew up in Southern California, so we have Seas Candies out there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so every time I come home, she has Seas Candies. That's awesome. And I'm That's like, awesome. take that stuff away from me because I I'll know. sit there I, and eat like three of them. Seas <laughs> is good, you know? So, well, maybe she was, it was that she was more aware, you know, not that she was necessarily like diet conscious per se, but she was, you know, she worked with food, so she was aware. Yeah, and also because her parents, she grew up in Missouri. Uh -huh. And my grandparents had a little farm and... We kind of just, I mean, I think she just grew up eating, you know, like they did off the farm and not so much with industrialized food, mm. which is, I feel so blessed and mm -hmm. lucky that I didn't grow up really with that all around me. I mean, obviously it's all around me, but mm -hmm. I, it just wasn't what we were, it wasn't our go-to food. And in fact, my, both my parents didn't want us to have like sugared cereals. Mm -hmm. And so like this whole like nostalgia that people have for craft macaroni and cheese mm. and cereal milk is something that I'm, it's so unfamiliar to me. Mm -hmm. And actually, I also think it's really disgusting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's like my anti, it's the anti-food. So you talk about food waste. So talk a little bit more about that because that comes up a lot in every kitchen. The main thing right now for us to think about is how much food waste there really is in this country. So, you know, I think you probably know the statistics, but 40% of the food that's made here, grown here, is put into landfill, which mm. is really unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And it's because we've had such a strong economy for a long time and commodity food stuff. And it's not just our, I mean, I think chefs are naturally good at food waste in a lot of ways sure. because it's our own little micro economy. So you want to utilize everything. Right. I mean, as somebody who used to have a bakery, like obviously you can't just throw away chocolate and butter and right. sugar right. and things like that are right. expensive. And so you figure out, clever ways and bakers have done that forever really mm -hmm, well mm -hmm. so you know the bear claw or the almond croissant or cake balls or cake pops or whatever those things are but you know you figure out how to use all your trimmings mm -hmm. we used to make little petite gâteau by taking all the trimmings from our regular cakes and then putting them all in a pan and then putting more entremet molds on top of it and pouring more mousse on top mm -hmm. of it so mm -hmm. not throw just money away because it's throwing money away and it's also like i feel like our messaging today as chefs in the industry to home consumers is, is the same. Like don't overbuy, mm -hmm. don't throw away your inventory. You right. know, it just kills right. me when I go to like big, you know, hotels or big things Ugh. where they're over ordering herbs and stuff because yeah. they, and, and it's, you've got to just really be on top of it. You got to use up what you have. I think we can all get better at it. So 
we've all been in situations where you're at a giant buffet and those things always, you know, from a food perspective, like looking around, you know, you hope that something good happens with all that food, but probably so much is going in, into the landfill. Well, that's the problem, too. If you set out a bunch of things, it's almost like a grocery store. If you put out too much product, because that's been the marketing, you know, objective for so long. It looks full and so people will buy more. But we need to really step back. And like you've been to Italy probably many times in Spain. And, you know, you go to a grocery store there. When the produce comes in, there's only so much. And if you didn't get there early enough, then you have to pick something else out. Yeah. And I actually, that's not a depressing thing for me. That's for some reason, this whole like genre of, you know, cooking competitions and sort of having, not having everything at your fingertips Uh is actually a better way to cook. It sets up a more creative platform for you. There's so many things that you can do. I mean, uh, so so when I was in college, I was fortunate enough to study in Italy, and that was my intro to the little tiny kitchen in the apartment that we stayed, where the toilet was in the shower, and it was like right. you know the size of like a shoebox. It had a little like a half fridge, you know. And coming from from the states, I was like, you know, what's this? But then there was a farmers market right outside my window, and that was my first introduction to you know a farmers market. And I realized, you know, you shop for a couple of days, you don't shop for you know two weeks. Right. right. And it's true. You would go to the vegetable guy and if he was out of artichokes, then, hey, you better get there earlier tomorrow. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, that's your fault. That's, yeah. that's on you, not on him. But it's you know? interesting, too, because when you think about other countries, like I'm just going to say Italy, just because I've been there a few times in the last couple of years, the kind of cuisine is based on what's available. Right. Right. So it actually almost teaches you to be a more precise cook because if you're like, okay, I'm going to make some pasta. I got the nice flour Mm -hmm. that actually smells like the wheat field, which is amazing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and then you're like, okay, there's some, you know, they're telling me I should try this ricotta cheese because the farmer's up the hill and I should definitely try that. And then I've got like, you know, some shallot and an eggplant and and maybe there's some, you know, cherry tomatoes. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to make a pasta with that. But I just think it's so interesting because if you sometimes when you go to our farmers markets where there's just so much stuff and you like want to buy everything, that's really you got to think about the yeah. timing of how you're going to use it. How you're going to use it, yeah. And just because it looks good, it, you know, it's not going to look as good rotting in your refrigerator. You yeah, know? I mean, I was just at the green market this morning over yeah. in Brooklyn, and you know, I'm flying to California tomorrow, but I was like, oh my god, look at those breakfast radishes! Right, and, like all the right. stuff is starting to come in, right. and it's so exciting because it's springtime, and they hadn't even set out the asparagus. But I'm like, you can't buy anything today because there's no time for you to eat it. Uh. You know, that's the part that I really want people to think about more. So I get it at home for sure, but the thing I think about is like huge restaurant kitchens and huge food service outlets who are making like a thousand meals a day. They need like a, a percentage of overage food right so that they don't run out and it's just like how do you get efficient with that percentage of not only you know certainly cooked food but like how do you get efficient on a large scale so we talked earlier about other things that chefs needed to talk about and you simply said being fit to cook so tell me about being fit to cook well you know it's funny because when i was first starting out in this business in San Francisco and I would, you know, I was the pastry chef for Tracy Desjardins for a few years or in the early days and in, in the early nineties in San Francisco, uh, Rubicon restaurant, mm-hmm. which was owned by Drew Neaport. I would come out with all these desserts 
and people would say, oh my gosh, but you're so thin. You know, uh, I heard you shouldn't trust a skinny chef. And I always would say to them, well, you should. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like seeing into the future. Right. (laughs) Because it's true. A lot of, I mean, historically, like a lot of chefs are, have been really overweight. And, you know, it's a, we all know it's a really crazy, tough job. And, you know, you're tasting things all day. And you also Mm -hmm. do like, almost like nervous I mean, for me, I know I've had like a lot of nervous behavior in the kitchens too, where it's like, you know, the, or everything's just really good. Like, you know, the bread delivery just came in from Sullivan street and I'm just munching on a warm loaf of bread and I'm like, Oh my God, I ate half the loaf of bread already. Yeah. (laughs) And it's only like 10 o'clock in the morning. So, but I've also played a lot of sports my whole life. So I played soccer from when I was nine until I was 38. Uh And even while I was, you know, running my restaurants, and I don't even know. Sometimes I'm like, how did I even do that today? Because right, right. I would go to soccer practice a couple nights a week. And I would also run every day just because you have to. You can't play soccer without doing other exercise. And then, you know, I would play soccer games. I'd go play a soccer game in the morning, deliver a wedding cake, come back and, you know, work in the restaurant all night. Hmm. I guess I just had a ton of energy. But I think the sports are so good for for everybody in this business. And that could be anything that that's a kind sure. of, you know, I also took up some mixed martial arts after stopping soccer. And then in the last few years, I've run the New York marathon. Oh, wow. I've run about a dozen half marathons. That's awesome. And then I'm doing chef cycle, which is a 300 mile bike ride like next week. Oh, wow. And I also do a lot of yoga and restorative kind of exercise. And I but just it, feel like this is really important yeah. stuff for chefs. And I'd love to, for chefs to, for cooking schools and young cooks to take that on because there's still a lot of the rock and roll sort of lifestyle right, right. that kind of comes with the territory. But at, at the same time, that there's no longevity in that. Well, yeah, it catches up with you. It does. It catches yeah. up with you either physically, health-wise, or definitely psychologically mm-hmm, mm. because you can only take so much abuse to your body. And not saying that sports can't <laughs> sports can also be abusive to your body. Well, I don't think that the 300 mile bike ride is right, like the nicest but, thing I could do. But you're you're more mindful when you're in the sport versus when you're in the kitchen and uh, you know you're running. I mean the objective is not, you know, to cross well, it is to cross the finish line I guess in a way, but the objective, you know, is to uh, have, you know, a successful service and you may not be paying attention to how your body's moving. Right, and it's also really so demanding to be on your feet all yeah. the time. Oh and, yeah. So just to do something to counter the stress. And mental health is more and more in the forefront these days with food professionals. So talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've also experienced my own sort of, when I moved from San Francisco, I had to close two restaurants, Mm. came in second place on a TV show that was a big deal to me, you know, Mm. next Iron Chef. And I, I wanted my spot in the Food Network because I felt like, I can cook a lot of different things. Like I do savory and I do sweet. And I felt like I have, you know, I went through the period of some molecular cuisine just because I like studying different foods. I don't have one ethnicity I'm cooking from. So I feel like that's a good message for a lot of people. There are no walls in my cooking, basically. Mm, mm. And I, you know, it's fun. I love challenges. I, all that stuff. So I felt sort of heartbroken after I was closing those restaurants. You know, mm. we had gone through the 2008 downturn, mm-hmm, tried mm-hmm. to survive one big restaurant that we opened in 2008 mm. for a few years. Uh, and then uh, Orson. Yeah. 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 And a, I remember going to Orson. Really cool yeah. place. Yeah, it was Just, great. Great space. Yeah. You know, tough spot. You were probably a pioneer in uh, Soma. Yeah, definitely. You know? And that street still hasn't really come around yeah. to what I'd 
I mean, I know Chris Costantino has his place there now. Yeah. But it's still, it's always under construction, that area. So yeah. Was, and I didn't see that coming. But I just. And it was a big spot. It was a huge yeah. spot. Gorgeous, though. Gorgeous building. But so I came out of all of that and, you know, 15 years of Citizen Cake, mm-hmm. which was my child, basically, mm-hmm. which was a pastry shop and a restaurant. And, you know, just dealing with the real estate equation of, you know, doubling rent after 10 years in the same spot and trying to move it again. And just the whole thing was just so expensive and. It was really just eating me alive. Mm. And thank God I was running and doing yoga and boxing at the mm-hmm. time. <laughs> I needed the boxing right. for sure. I, I'm sure. I can, <laughs> yeah, yes. And quite frankly, I think that kind of stuff has really helped me through some trying times. Mm. I mean, I moved to New York and opened a couple other restaurants for other people. Were, and you, then, were you just done with San Francisco? Were you like, let's, let's try New York? And You know, and- it's a combination of like, I felt like the city had changed so much since I had moved there in 1987. Mm-hmm. Being so much more tech driven. Oh yeah, I still love San Francisco. It's just a different focus. It's it's not as artsy as it I guess mm-hmm. it used to be. Mm-hmm. And then also, I felt like I had a relationship with San Francisco, and that San Francisco was actually done with me. Nah. You know, <laughs> and uh, it's funny because nah. I really I felt like I was I was breaking up with the city. Yeah. You know, the yeah. place I was born. Yeah, I needed some time away. Yeah. Also, truthfully, I wanted to live in New York at some point. Right. And I just thought, well, I guess the I'll time. just go now. Yeah. And I opened a couple of restaurants for other people, and then I, I wasn't an owner. Yeah. And then I discovered, okay, I can't do this without being an owner because yeah. I can't watch people just throw away their money or snort right. their money right. or do just not even know how to run a restaurant. And yeah. then I was like, why am I getting involved with people who don't really know how to do this business? Yeah. And I kind of had to just stop. I stopped managing restaurants full time like five years ago, mm. and I and then it took me like a good two years to recover from. Like post-traumatic restaurant stress disorder. Yeah, sure. Because I was, I didn't, it just felt like it was so quiet. You know, like people weren't texting me in the morning saying, you know, chef, I'm not going to make it to work or I'm, right. you know, or the fish isn't here yet. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. I'm so used to micromanaging all those little details, uh-huh. right? And just making sure stuff is getting done. And I also just was like, wow, I'm kind of exhausted and I didn't even know it. Yeah. Oh. You know? Well, listen, I was here in New York living here for two years and I hadn't, walked around and mm. I hadn't been to a museum, you know, mm. and it's stuff I love about New York. Right. I hadn't, you know, walked on the High Line since I was a tourist here. Mm. And I thought, oh my God, I can just go walk around the village and see stuff. Mm. It took me a while to sort of figure out that this was the right time for me to stop and smell the roses. Mm. So what would be your advice to young chefs who are in that cycle, in that never-ending cycle? It's interesting because I th- I'm thinking about how being a chef requires a certain kind of personality where, like you said earlier, it's not really like an ADD, mm-hmm. but it's sort of <laughs> like squirrel. You know, right, it's yeah. almost like you're just used to things going off right. all around you right. all the time. And like a juggler, doesn't a juggler look at their hands, you know, like to see where the ball's going to land. So yeah, and you get really good at that. Yeah. It's funny because even though I'm not managing restaurants full time, I'm really busy and I'm shifting gears. Like I'll go to a women's chefs conference a couple of weeks ago and then I'm at the James Beard Awards, you know, presenting and then I'm doing chef cycle. And I'm meanwhile, I have like several events cooking at in between mm-hmm. and I've got to come up with menus mm-hmm. and recipes to send and, you know, quotes for a book and blah, 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 blah. And so I'm still kind of like, I'm doing, doing that, it on right. this different scale. right? And I think I couldn't manage a restaurant right now just because I have all these different projects in different parts of the country constantly right and so much other kind of planning but i don't have the team that's the difference i don't have 
you know, sous chefs to say, can you pack up this stuff for right, me for my right, event? Right, right, I'm actually doing right, it myself over right. here. Huh. So I still get my cooking fix. I guess my advice is that becoming disciplined early on about mm. taking on, maybe it's not even a sport that you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Like I've had to shift gears too. I have stopped running so much because my left knee is not really that happy about mm. the impact from running. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, fine. I'll take on cycling. And that's happened, you know, I couldn't play soccer for my whole life. That would be dangerous. And I'd probably foul everybody all the time, <laughs> not fast enough anymore. But I think just taking on different activities like that or or saying, you know, I'm going to spend the day getting a massage and reading a book that I'm into. Mm. It's really more about personal time, which mm. you're constantly giving yourself away when you're cooking. You're constantly taking care of other people. Mm-hmm. And there has to be a chunk of time for yourself during every day or week. And that chunk can be 30 minutes to an hour. But I would say it's really important to try to get in a habit. Think about people who start smoking young. And I can say this because I did smoke at one point in my life. Mm -hmm. And it didn't last very long, thank God, because I just think it's such a horrible thing to do to a cook. To smoke, it kills your palate, first of all. Mm. And also, if the time that you take to take breaks to do that is something that you could be doing which is more healthy for your body Mm. rather than trying to kill it. Why not start those good habits young? Rather yeah. than the bad habits, young. I, I love that. I think that's a great idea. And, you know, in fact, the chef Chris Chung from Eastwood Snack Shop on uh, the other day, he said we were doing a, an interview and he was like, you know, it's like, get ready for your 40s in cooking because he's like, it, you know, it, it, and, and it's true. Like your, your body gets creakier, you know, the bending over, the bending down, the squatting down. Yeah. You've seen other people do it, right? Yeah. Where you're, you can hear them go. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when right. they have to get into the oven. Right, you, know? Right. you know, it's funny because I was cooking at Pebble Beach Food and Wine. Where I used to be, like, I'm still, I mean, I can handle a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm physically Mm -hmm. not challenged to do a lot of things. But I used to be able to, you know, just pick up a Hobart bowl, Mm -hmm. you know, with my knees. And And now I'm just like, can you get that for me? (laughs) I'm not going (laughs) to. I'm not going to waste the energy yeah. right now. Well, it's well, and it's and those things are harder to recover from. Yeah, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh no, if I'm cooking like especially because I'm not used to it on a daily basis anymore. So if I cook for like a whole day, I'm like, right. I am wiped it's, out. It's physical. <laughs> it's physical. So I asked you for some other uh, soapbox career advice. You said something really great about pushing yourself in areas where you're not comfortable. Yeah, it's more like, if you think about it, do you really want to be pigeonholed as anything? Mm. I'm still kind of, I have a chip on my shoulder, and hopefully I can get through it at some point. But I mean, I think I've kind of busted out of my stereotype, but it's been such a challenge. Mm. Because early on, you know, I I started in pastry. Yeah, I would say your stereotype early on. I mean, I remember you early on from pastry. Right, and I also, you know, I had a my first restaurant business started as just as a bakery Mm. and then even though we did bread and pizzas and then we moved to a different location and became a full restaurant but because of the name citizen cake Mm -hmm. i think people and then you know here comes food network i appear on food network as one of the best pastry chefs Mm -hmm. around and it perpetuates the whole cake Mm -hmm. baker thing Mm -hmm. and which is great i love being a pastry chef Mm -hmm. because it's a very it's much more disciplined oh yeah even a better savory chef Mm. so but I didn't just say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stick with what I do. I'm like, no, I, I mean, I love to learn how to butcher. So I mm-hmm. did that. And I loved to, I was like, God, I want to make pasta like some of the people's food I'm having. So I've like, you know, made myself learn all these different kinds of cooking. And I, I just love it. I feel like 
why would anybody want to get stuck in any one genre? Mm-hmm. It's harder for sure. Cause it would, I guess life might be easier if you just say, I'm going to, I'm really good at this one thing. I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And that might be fine for some people, but I just can't like, there's no way I could make tons of wedding cakes for the rest of my life. I mean, it's just one part of cooking where I see it as like, I'm just exploring the world through food. I mean, I just love learning about cultures of food and the, like right now I'm sort of obsessed with different parts of Indian, that whole area uh-huh, uh-huh. cooking, just because the spice combinations, just like anywhere, it varies throughout the country. And I'm just learning more and more about, you know, pockets of the world. I'm, I get to go to China later this year. Uh, I don't know anything about awesome. Chinese cuisine, uh, really, you know? I'd love to go to China. Yeah, I mean, I just can't wait to explore it. And I know whenever I go somewhere and learn about food, I'm, I'm just blown away. You know, and I'm, I'm not going to try to recreate everything because I can't bring all ingredients from all around the world at any given point in time to one place. But I learned so much more about technique and ingredients and why people put things together. And that might translate into what I can use here. I also find that at least, you know, when I start to get bogged down in the millions of things that running a restaurant is that if I take myself back to the creative side and like get lost in like something like exciting and something new and like, you know, obsessed with something or kind of geek out on something, you know, that's when the fun comes back. And it makes those other parts about like, oh, I have to get the grease trap cleaned out or like, you know, so-and-so, you know, having some issues at work or, you know, something like that. So you have to do those things. You have to like push yourself, you know, to, to find whatever excites you. Yeah. You know, and you can still make it your own, you know, like this can happen on like small scale or the other day I was walking around Alinea with Nick Mm -hmm. Kokonas. You know, I've been to that restaurant, but it's been like 12 years ago. Mm. So I hadn't seen this remodel and, you know, they were describing the menu, not so much the menu, but like what was going to happen at the current menu Mm -hmm. any given night there. And I just thought this restaurant is so amazing because it, you know, they've never really just said, you know, Grant's just not making the same food all mm-hmm. these years. They really have, they have themes. So you go in there and, you know, you don't even know what's going to happen because it's, they turn the tables around and lights go out and then you mm. in a different room and it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. theater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I love that they explore different kinds of cuisine. So like they were focused on a, a Salvador Dali kind of concept. And, you know, I'm not sure, I didn't have dinner there that night, but I'm not sure how that translates into the food. But I love that, like, why not? Like, why not explore, like, a different era of cooking or, I mean, just the concept of surrealism, you know, in food. And food is pleasure. It should be fun. You know, it should... Especially on that scale, too, because you're, you know, you're going to pay some money and have... But, I mean, it shouldn't... It's like they've just gone to theatrical. And it shouldn't be so rigid that it makes you... I mean, everybody's had the experience where they're sitting at a table, if it's, you know, fancy or not fancy, and it's just such a rigid environment, you know? that somehow the fun has gone out of it. See, that's the problem Transits. I have with, like people often ask me, where's my restaurant, If I'm, especially if I'm doing an event. Mm-hmm. And they're like, it's so weird that you're here, but you don't have a restaurant. I'm like, why is that weird? I love to cook. Mm-hmm. And I, We eat three times a day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I love those in festivals and charity events because first of all, I'm helping sure. you know, some other cause yeah. typically. And I'm also, I'm not trying to bring you to my restaurant. I don't have mm-hmm. this commerce that I'm trying to create. I'm actually just there because I'm into this kind of food. I want to mm-hmm. help. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel free. Mm-hmm. I get to cook whatever I want to. Mm-hmm. 
And I just, I'm like, I'm cooking for you right now. Isn't that, I mean, this is. To say the interesting thing about those kinds of events too is you get to see immediate reactions, which you don't always, not all of us have open kitchens, you know? Right. And so, so, you know, I mean, eventually you understand how things are received, but there's something about somebody eating it in front of you. You know, oh, yeah, you know, all, right away you know how, right how away how brilliant you are or not that day. Exactly. Or not, right? So I asked you what makes you mad. And one of the things you said is ego. So talk about that a little bit because I thought that was a good, good answer. Well, I mean, sometimes I feel like, you know, you just, hmm. I think it's just when people, I don't know, they just take their food stuff so seriously and just kind of, I don't know, push it in for the wrong reasons, I guess. Mm. Anything that's just too egotistical mm. is just kind of annoying, mm. right? I mean, mm. I I feel like when people ask me if I'm going to, op- you know, do I want to have my own restaurant? I'm like, well, I've already done that. Well, don't, don't you want to open another one? I'm like, well, no, not really. That would just be really egotistical mm-hmm. right now. Mm. Because there are so many great cooks coming up and mm. other restaurants. And I mean, I have my own issues with just, you know, brick and mortar restaurants today because it's just so, everything around running a restaurant is so expensive. Yeah. And also, like, I, I mean, I have a strong ego myself, for sure, but I'm trying to figure out the best places to put it. What's and, the difference between ego and confidence? That's a good question. That's a good point, because sometimes even my little brother says that I have a strong ego, and I'm like, I do? <laughs> <laughs> I think I do, but I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe a overcompensation for sometimes lack of confidence, yeah, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm confident in cooking and stuff. I have to kind of think about that. Egotistical chef is somebody who just keeps opening restaurants over and over instead right. of sharing. Right. And well, this is a conversation I have about women chefs today. Mm. It's like, I would really like to see, you know, Ashley Christensen, who just won Chef of the Year at uh-huh. James Beard, or Kelly Fields, or I can think of a hundred chefs that I would like to go to in their town where they have their restaurant. But why don't we see more of them, you know, on hotel projects, mm. in different real estate development. Mm-hmm. There are some great chefs. I want, I want to try their food in different places. I've yeah. been happy to walk into a hotel somewhere else in the world and see this person's name on that restaurant. Right. And I feel like, like in I feel a like giant there's Vegas, only like you know, kind of setting. Why not? You know, I feel like on. there's only like eight or ten guys that have their names all over tons of restaurants right. around the world. Right. And I'm like, why is that? Like, has nobody thought? Maybe I shouldn't take on 20 restaurants. I mean, you know, like, right, how many right. restaurants do you really need? Right. That feels egotistical to me. Like, yeah. I know they're just contracts. And of course, it's attractive because chefs, you know, you don't make tons of money. Right. There's only like one or two people that have made tons of money from this industry. But, you know, but it, some people make a decent living from it. But I think like, you know, I'd like to see some diversity in the people. And I just mean diversity in all over the place, not just think, the same guys. Do you think women chefs are naturally less egotistical? I do. I mean, I, I'll, I'll yeah, say that right now. I, I really I do. do. I do. I really feel like most of my women chef friends don't have so much ego in their yeah. kind of cooking and or in their restaurant. It's much more family oriented. Right. If that right. makes sense. Yeah. No, no, it does. It does. I spend a lot of time talking with women chefs. And in fact, I have more women chefs interviews on the podcast than than men like by far and it's always interesting because you get at least so far with the, with the people that are in my experience right because you don't know what you don't know right mm. i have found that women chefs tend to be way more collaborative and way more and that's how i like to be too i mean i like you know i love getting the opinions of the team and talking through things and saying like hey you know 
like, does this work or why does it work? Why doesn't it work? You know, or, or, or you know, what should we do today? You know, kind of, you know, I, I, I love. I feel like a lot of male chefs do that too. I think and, more and more, yeah. more and more, you know, it felt, I think, more natural doing it in my own place. But I remember when I was working for other people, you know, you, you didn't really get the whole team's opinions on everything all the time. And, and I didn't understand, I didn't put it together why exactly at that moment. But I think ego certainly plays a role into it. I think sometimes, you know, you get caught up with, so caught up with that your signature is on something that if you, you get less willing to take a chance, you know, and that you're like, you know, this is what I want to do. I know it's going to be correct. We're not going to take a chance on anything else. This is the direction, you know, but. Right. So that's a good point. I feel like a really good successful chef is a really good team captain. Mm. And because it is about your team, building the right team, mm-hmm. and also not letting your ego run away with everything, but allowing everybody to have, everybody who, you know, you've brought for, they're on the team for a reason to have their input in the right places so that the team is actually moving forward, mm. you know? Yeah, because it ha- the whole team has to be on board to win a game anyway. Did you find in your early career you were having to prove yourself harder than others and it made an impression on you? Because I really talked to a lot of female chefs who they felt especially, you know, and, and again, less and less, but like in the in the older days that they would come into a kitchen and they would have to change their voice, just change themselves, mm. you know? I mean... My experience in the first like real restaurant job I had was in pastry at mm-hmm. Moss's mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So our pastry chef was a woman, mm-hmm. but everybody else was male. Like I was just such a perfectionist that, you know, my goal from the get-go was just to impress my pastry chef by, you know, I had to make like 10 different ice creams and sorbets a day. Oh my God. And a few other, you know, mise en place for the service and do service. Tens a lot. It was a lot, especially because the ice cream machines weren't. You know, they were slower. and Yeah, yeah. I think the, when we first, when I first got there, we still had like a Gaggia tabletop one that mm. took like at least 30 minutes, if not an hour, to make a batch of ice cream. So like, it was just so you, an all-day event. Yeah, I was going to say, you were held to the timer. <laughs> I was doing other yeah. things while the ice cream was being made. But yeah. I mean, it was, I have to come in and make everything from scratch every day. But I remember just trying to, and I learned my job by writing the recipes down from the person who worked before me right. as she walked me through the station, you know, for right. a week. And then, you know, at the end of the week, I made everything. And my pastry chef wouldn't even talk to me for the first month until I had perfected everything. So, like, like she'd turn her back to me and taste all the ice creams and stuff, and she'd go, the tangerine sorbet is too sweet. And I'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> So I just wanted to really just impress yeah. her first. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. Because she was really tough. Right. And then as soon as I perfected everything, she warmed up to me, and we became really good friends. Well, if I've proved myself to the pastry chef, then... But especially to like the the men in the kitchen, you know? See, but this is the cool thing. So when I first got my job at Mm Moss's, Julian Serrano Mm -hmm, asked mm -hmm. me if I got, if I ever got sick. And I was like, no, dude, I play soccer. And he was like, because I knew Julian wanted to be a pro pro ball player in his early days. And he he was like, what position? And so I immediately clicked with him because I was like, chef, I'm going to play soccer games on Saturday. But if it's too close to service, I won't do it. I won't play those. And he's like, no problem, no problem. So like Friday nights, he'd be like, chef, a little foie gras for the game tomorrow. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that foie gras isn't what I am supposed to be eating right now. But yes, chef. Right. That's hysterical. (laughs) So maybe in this conversation has come up a lot now with gay women, queer women in the kitchen. I think that I immediately sort of 
adapted to the environment being more of one of the boys mm. than a girl. Mm. And also, you know, whoever I was dating would come into the restaurants and mm -hmm. they were usually pretty attractive. So that was always a bonus for me, right? Because the, the, all the boys would be like... Jealous. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, Jealous. what's your girlfriend? Yeah. What are you guys doing later? Yeah. And I'm like, no. Yeah, yeah right, 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 right. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Right, right. This conversation stops here. Yeah. 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 Wow. No, that, and that, I'm not that, sure that, if that's, that's like... A, that's a, No, that's an interesting point. And, it was uh, an adaptive yeah. thing for me yeah. in the kitchen, for sure. And I also became very... I mean... I have become a lot like them for many years. I would, I have this Jekyll and Hyde sort of persona in a way because I'm, I am a really friendly, outgoing person who completely talks to guests all the time. Uh -huh. And I've always had kind of an open kitchen when I built my own places. So even when I had, you know, citizen cake on Grove Sheep and I'd be behind the glass doing yeah. something with chocolate or a croaking bush or something, I'd see people and they'd wave at me and I'd come out and say hi and all that kind of stuff. And I'm that way with cooks too. But I can also be really like, what the fuck did you do with that right. sauce right there? Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm like, one more time of that and you're out. You know, like, I mean, that's just the way it is in the kitchen. But I also definitely have that, uh, I can have a really barky kind of male attitude hmm. in plating and even in events. Sometimes I'm like, you need to chill out. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's about a balance. Yeah. Right? It's about a balance. So I asked you uh, earlier how many pastry chefs it, it takes to change the light bulb, and I loved your answer. So, you know, <laughs> one. one. Yeah. And then how many chefs does it take to change the light bulb? One pastry chef. Uh, yeah, I, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Because, you know, pastry chefs are known for the ones who are organized and the totally. ones who, who are, you know, and, and usually the ones who are cornered into a small space Many times they're not getting the resources first, you know, they're kind of having to wait. They get the they oven got one second. shelf in the they, walk. -in. Right. They got one shelf, you know, and I loved that answer. I thought that was a fantastic. And another reason why I felt like I, I didn't always just want to be known as a pastry chef is a pastry chef doesn't nearly make as much money mm. when you get invited to events. There's one pastry chef and like mm. four chefs mm -hmm. making the different courses. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Not enough money. Certainly yeah, it's not. Like the, it's kind of like the redheaded stepchild, you know. It's the it's ways. a second class citizen yeah. in the kitchen, which is a huge mistake because here's this person, you know, is the most economical part of the experience. Uh -huh. They they're like creating right one whole course, if not more, because right. they're usually right. doing all the breads right and some of the stuff that the guys can't do. And right. I don't mean guys like that. I'm just meaning, yeah, like, folks, people. Meaning like the more meticulous work. Mm -hmm. Is usually the and the pastry chef's there from the beginning of the day to the end, mm -hmm. you know, waiting for the last table. Mm -hmm. Like it's right. No, it's true. It's a like thanks, when, no thanks when, for your job. When savory's all in, you know, stations are cleaned and and you know and the cooks are gone. Yeah, you know, but you're waiting for dessert, and that dessert course can can be a while. And also, like I, I remember when I was had this kitchen up on the second floor at Rubicon. It was my own pastry kitchen, which was a big deal mm -hmm. in the '90s. You know, and it, you're just way more meticulous. Everything's like really clean. Everything's really organized. Yeah, I have all the pastry tips. And every, you know, cook comes upstairs. Hey, can I borrow one of the pastry tips mm -hmm. and a bag? And you know, because I'm the person who has right. all that stuff. And I'm, and you have to be kind of like militant because you're like, oh, yeah. bring it back as right. soon as you're done. Yeah, make I'll, sure it's clean. Yeah, I'll come to your house. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, don't mess with me because tomorrow I have to make those things right. in the morning, you know, right. the pot of shoe or whatever. It's just this like crazy disciplined job. So mm -hmm. yeah, it does mm -hmm. take for to change the light bulb downstairs for the prep kitchen. Right. <laughs> it takes that one pastry step upstairs <laughs> to know where the light bulbs are. <laughs>
I remember this one guy came up and he was like, one of our managers, he was like, what? Your job isn't that, look, it's like you have nothing to do here. And I'm like, <laughs> all the work's been done and it's down below here in right. these refrigerators. What do you need? Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, he was going to end up in a cookie. <laughs> so, so tell me about Chef Cycle. Talk to me about that. Oh my God, it's so great. It's the first time I'm doing Chef Cycle this year. And it's a fundraiser for No Kid Hungry. Mm. And it's shocking how many hungry kids there are in this country. Mm. You know, the economy and the way things are distributed and our systems are pretty broken. Mm -hmm. So Who has access to what? And yeah. A lot of places in this country, they have like food deserts and mm. just not enough of the right kind of focus on food stuff. Mm -hmm. So, But No Kid Hungry is Share Our Strength has been around for, I don't know, like 30 years or mm. more. And brings food to some of those kids around the country. So, you know, every dollar helps feed like, I think it's like 10 or 14 meals or something. Like it's kind of, everything's so helpful. They really do get the work with different food programs and getting food to, to hungry kids. So I'm really happy to be raising money for that. I've done it through cooking before, but I've never done it through this physical endeavor. But since I'm talking about being physical and thinking about food, then I feel like I have to walk the part and say, okay, yeah, I'm going to, not only can I cook for fundraising, but I can do a physical activity mm. like riding 300 miles on a bike. Mm. Front of you. Mm -hmm. So this, this is a good lead into a little game. If that's okay. okay. It's not a hard game. It's called three things. It can be real or made up. It doesn't matter. It's just three things. Easy. <laughs> three things. So tell me three differences between California and New York. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. East coast, west the coast. The differences are agriculture mm -hmm. is the first thing that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just all of the different produce in California that with that Mediterranean climate mm -hmm. and the longer seasons of, of having that produce is dramatically different than here. So like we have really nice produce from spring through fall in New York and great farms all around here in different, you know, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, upstate, lots of stuff, lots of really beautiful things. And the terroir is just different. So it's not going to have the same kind of tomatoes, for example. But still, so many good things and different things here. And then also the ocean. So between the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean and the fish that are in either one, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. totally different. T totally different. Yeah. And both really amazing. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a preference for one or the other. Mm -hmm. And it's the same about the produce. And then I would just say... The seasons and the people. So like the seasons really, like I was talking about cassoulet, like I want cassoulet in the wintertime in New York because mm. it's really cold and it's been cold for months and your bones are cold. Mm -hmm. And then you have something like this, you know, great classic French dish mm -hmm. with the bean, tarbe beans and the confit of duck mm -hmm. and sausages. And it's actually, my mouth is watering because yeah. it is so delicious yeah. with yeah. the breadcrumbs on top. Yeah. But I don't want that in California. Right. And I am such a California person living in New York. So uh -huh. like I'm, I even said at the James Beard Awards the other night, I was presenting Best Chef of California. Uh -huh. And it was like a joke at the beginning about like, I'm, am I Californian? Right. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I definitely preach the gospel of kale and leafy greens <laughs> and lots of citrus. Um, it's the climate. So like in California, I feel like I can eat a lot. I kind of want different things all year round. You know, San Francisco is so particular 
so specific mm-hmm. that like it's tomato season and you have these dry farm tomatoes mm-hmm. and they're amazing mm-hmm. like the, as good as the ones in greece you know mm-hmm. like because the the roots are reaching for water mm-hmm. right and the concentrated sun like you just can't get tomatoes like that everywhere mm-hmm. you know and i think about when i'm in san francisco i'm like oh my god look at these tomatoes i'm gonna go back and make gazpacho and then you're like oh here comes the fog oh no mm. now i'm gonna make a bisque <laughs> <laughs> the, no it's true yeah it's true yeah. yeah and you can't you can't plan on the weather but that's the cool yeah. thing about california is that you can or the west coast in general is like you can change your mind in the middle of the day depending on the climate change just right within a few right. you know 10 degrees but in new york oh my god it's like you know when it, the drama of having winter time on your food it creates a, a really different kind of way of cooking so there's i love both i like yeah. playing in all these different yeah. you know that's great to, worlds to of food be stuff. able to get to know both and just the having the drama of the seasons good answers all of them so now and this can be again either made up or real three failed dishes three failed flavor combinations three failed so three flavors that don't go together three dishes mm. where they just don't work to you. That's a good question for me because yeah. I believe anything can work. It's just mm, about balance. Mm. Three failed combinations. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, this is a stumper for me. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I mean, I can be critical about some, you know. And remember, it could be it could be made up. It doesn't even, you know. Right. It's not precious. But it's about flavor because it's usually about like. A failed dish is when somebody hasn't cooked octopus right. That's just a f- massive failure. Okay, but no, that's that. Well, I'll, that's great. That that totally applies. And how disrespectful to that animal, right. you know? I know. That, that's well, not so much flavors that like really mess okay, with it's me. Technique. It's, it's tech. It's okay. really when people okay, so overcook me, or undercook things that so really what, bothers what me. What else stands out in your head? Like overcooked salmon. Oh, like that's yeah. Oh, I have a actually. I did eat a dish one time that was a total failure, and I remember it because I actually got sick from it. But oh. it might, was because of the mushrooms, I think. So we had forage mushrooms in Alaska. Oh. And I've never had any kind of reaction to any mushrooms. Yeah. I'm not, I don't have food allergies. Yeah. We took the mushrooms to this chef, and then he cooked them with cooked poached salmon and bacon fat, which I think is a bad idea because it's already a fatty fish, and it was just. Okay. I don't so know. It just like, didn't it was work. Like, like a confit really or rich. like a. It was like too rich, and then yeah. there were these sautéed forage mushrooms with it, mm. and so it really was no acid in the dish. Mm. So that's a problem for mm. me. Mm-hmm. When Didn't taste lack balanced. of acid in yeah. a dish is a really big problem yeah. for me. Yeah. But it was just like, ooh, it was so, so fatty, yeah. and then the mushrooms, and then turns out like one in every two people might get sick from these mushrooms uh, if they're not cooked thoroughly and they're uh, too fresh. So three of us out of six got oh, food no. like mushroom poisoning basically oh, that no. night. I mean, food poisoning is a Yeah, yeah, failure. no one wants that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, we'll mark that as a failure, yes. So undercooked octopus and food poisoning. You, right. You've got two. Yeah. What else? I think, like, anything that, oh, like, oh, let's just talk about, like, cake pop balls. That's a massive <laughs> I hate those things. Why do you hate Because them? it's like somebody chewed up the cake and spit it out and put it on a popsicle stick. <laughs> <laughs> like no, and dipped it in white chocolate. Yeah, like that's a, I know. No, yeah. Anything that's super sugary sweet, confetti. I don't like birthday cake flavored anything. Okay, right. that's my last. Right. That's my answer. <laughs> I don't like birthday cake flavored anything. I don't want because birthday, it's, true. it's just my like, birthday it's just cake like is sweet. not not that birthday cake. Yeah. My birthday cake is a roulade of like a cocoa sponge cake yeah. with like mocha almond fudge ice cream yeah. or mint chip ice cream. Yeah. That's oh, my yeah, birthday that's cake. Like, don't tell me what my birthday cake flavor yeah. is. Yeah. You know? 
Right, that's right. You're hijacking my birthday. Okay, last three. Three fears. Everybody's got fears. I'm afraid of, well, I'm, gosh, that's pretty intense. No, <laughs> mm. oh, it's a good question. I, know. I mean, I guess I'm, it's kind of funny. I'm kind of, I'm not, a, I'm, I am afraid of it, but I'm sort of just starting menopause and it, I don't, I'm afraid of like the stuff that comes with it. Mm, it's mm. like nobody really talks about it because it's certainly not, I guess, sexy to talk about, but huh. it's something that happens yeah. to everybody. And I mean, That's, to every woman, yeah. I'm afraid of it because I've always been so, you know, not afraid to talk in front of an audience or in front of people mm-hmm. or with people. And I don't lose track of my thinking that easily, but mm-hmm. because of the shift in hormones, it does make you kind of like, what? What am I talking about right now? Where am I? I'm afraid of that just because I'm like, I have to kind of embrace it and just kind of go with the, right. the flow or the lack of flow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm afraid of it because it's not something that we talk about very often, but that's, I'm somebody who loves challenges Yeah. and things that I've been afraid of in the past. I like say I'm, or I don't like something. I'm going to make that my version of it that I'm going to like. Right. So right. I'm going to try to take it on and yeah. say, okay, well, it's like, it's okay to like be honest about it. Yeah. It's a scary thing. Your life is really shifting, you know, yeah. it's changing. I'm afraid of what it's going to do to my face and my skin mm. as any woman would be. Mm. <laughs> you know? Oh, I didn't know that, that menopause changes your skin. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Yeah. It just changes everything. Your hormones mm. just aren't, are not working the same way mm. anymore. I'm afraid of pharmaceuticals. Hmm. And I think because we talk about less refined food is better for you. And right. I think less refined pharmaceuticals oh, would sure. be better for us. Or, oh, sure. you know, healing through food is, and, and I'm afraid of, of what we're, how we're impacting the, the planet hmm. on a deep level. Mm-hmm. I'm, on, a, every, on a daily basis, I'm hmm. reminded, because I feel like sometimes I walk down the street. I've lived here in New York for seven years now. Mm-hmm. And when you first get here, you have romantic eyes about New York still mm. and all the history and mm-hmm. landmarks and mm-hmm. it's cool. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful it's, and there's so much energy cool. and yeah. there's a lot of great people yeah. here constantly and yeah. it's just not, not like anywhere else. And I no. love that part about it. But also sometimes I'm like, man, I am living in a garbage can. Mm. I'm yeah. My answer is I'm, I'm scared of ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are good. Those are good fears. You got some good fears. <laughs> well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. This was fantastic. You so much good things to share. Thank you for sharing them. So fun to hang out with you. Yeah. If you want to check out Elizabeth Faulkner socially, it's at Chef Faulkner, F-A-L-K-N-E-R. Or if you want to visit her on the web, it's ElizabethFaulkner.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. Find us on all things social at Culinary Mindcast and on the web, CanelaSF.com dot com backslash podcast. Don't forget to rate us where you found us.